Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're joined by special guest Steve Van Meter. And today, at the end of today's show, ladies and gentlemen, you are going to learn at least two things. Why is U.S. inflation higher than in other countries? And how much do supply and demand drive inflation? Gentlemen, I was looking through Zero Hedge and they had an article about uh, what the Federal Reserve Bank of New York Bank of San Francisco is writing, and they had an article there about breaking up supply and demand inflation drivers to figure out what's driving these consumer price increases. And then the next uh, article a couple months earlier was why is U.S. inflation higher than in the other countries in the U.S.? And I just wanted to go over this and uh, get your reaction. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. Jump in anytime. All right. So here we go. So this one's from March 28th, 2022. If anybody wants to uh, read along and here is what the bank of San Francisco there has concluded. Inflation rates in the United States and other developed economies have closely tracked each other historically. However, since the first half of 2021, U.S. inflation has increasingly outpaced inflation in other developed countries. Estimates suggest that fiscal support measures designed to counteract the severity of the pandemic's economic effect may have contributed to this divergence by raising inflation by about three percentage points by the end of 2021. And may? here's the kicker. Is this even a question? Let, <laughs> let me get the kicker to you. This is just core rates. Core. Three yeah. percent. But go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. No, I mean, if you stop and just, I mean, knowing nothing about economics, not being formally trained, which actually is a benefit, none of that. I mean, regression set all the stuff statistics aside. If you were just to look at consumer price increases around the rest of the world, you would look and say, oh, look, here's the highest one. And it just so happens to be in the place where the government did the most. So, I mean, th there's a correlation here that's intuitive. It's basic. It's very fundamental and easy to understand. So do we really need to have a, you know, a, a paper or discussion about this? And unfortunately, I think the answer is yes, because most people think this is, first of all, the reason I didn't want to stay, say anything in the beginning is because we're using the term inflation here and we're falling into the trap where we're using it interchangeably, which I believe, Emil, you're going to correct very soon. So we'll I'll get try. to that in a minute. But yeah, we do have to have this discussion because, I mean, the crypto bubble, the uh, stock market, all these things over the last couple of years have been, you know, predicated on this idea of money printing, the Fed, quantitative easing and all these other stuff. So it's probably helpful that we do get, get this stuff out of the way. What is the difference between quote unquote inflation versus the real thing? Right. Why does that matter? Because what did the public hear? They had a Fed chair, Powell, come out on 60 Minutes to say, I printed money. And that's what this is. So the public, they're not seeing it from this supply and demand side. They're seeing it as, hey, we've had this inflation for 40 years. The Fed now has this magical tool to print money, which we didn't really quite understand when they were doing this QE. But now we get it. So inflation is here to stay and it's all monetary based. There is no other kind of inflation. But that's just not the case. One of the questions I'm going to have for you both is, we always try to make a distinction between consumer price increases driven by monetary matters, supply and demand, and just monetary measures by the central bank. But they're going to make the point here that monetary measures via the federal government contributed 
to this inflation. So I just wanted to go over that. Is that something sustainable in the future if the federal government kept doing these stimulus payments? But let me set the context some more and we'll address this question of CPI versus monetary CPI. So before the pandemic, U.S. core CPI inflation remained on average about one percentage point above the OECD sample average. And what they do in this paper is they gather eight countries, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. And I sure hope that is eight because I didn't count it. So we'll see if how close I am. And they put together a nice graph here that shows what the OECD average core inflation is from 2019, the first quarter of 2020, 2019, the first quarter, all the way through the fourth quarter of 2021. And we see that they, these countries and the United States diverged in the second quarter of 2021. And they continue by early 2021, <laughs> however. The second quarter of 2020. That rings a bell somewhere. You know, I don't, I think I remember something big happening in that time. By early, to, well, tell, tell us, Jeff, what was it? Oh, everybody knows because they got money deposited in their checking accounts. That was, that was the biggest, the most complete helicopter payment there was. So before the pandemic, core inflation was essentially similar, if somewhat higher in the United States than the sample. By early 2021, however, U.S. inflation increasingly diverged from the other countries. U.S. core CPI grew from below 2% to above 4% and stayed elevated throughout 2021. In contrast, the OECD sample average increased at a more gradual rate from around 1% to 2.5% by the end of 2021. While all countries had been affected by COVID-19, policy responses varied considerably. And this is what you're saying, Jeff. Yeah, and I think it's even worse than that because what happened was consumer price, and, and I think we'll get to the other part of the equation in the end here, but the American demand shift to the right actually dragged consumer prices up for everybody else around the world. You saw that in commodities as well as shipping, supply, logistical, all that other stuff. As Americans went crazy buying on Amazon.com, that had spillover effects to the rest of the world. So Uncle Sam essentially created the, well, didn't create the supply shock, but turbocharged the supply shock in terms of global consumer prices. And so it started here and then it slowly brought, you know, like gravity sort of pulled everybody else into the maelstrom. So how to discern or how to tease out what may have caused this, what they do is they look at real disposable income across the country. So they, they consider, they say, this measures the amount of individuals, the amount the individuals have left to spend after paying taxes and receiving government transfer payments, the key. It is relatively comparable measure across countries that incorporates the overall magnitude of net pandemic transfers, trying to get to that bottom line because everyone did something different furloughs in Europe, stimulus payments in the U.S. And so now they have another graph where they've measured real disposable income in the U.S. versus the OECD sample, again, starting in the first quarter of 2019, all the way through the fourth quarter of 2021. And we see two spikes, the second quarter of 2020 and the first quarter of 2021. Let's see here. The two peaks in the U.S. disposable personal income reflect, of course, the CARES Act signed into law in March 
2020 and the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 signed about a year later. Both acts resulted in an unprecedented, I don't know if that's true, injection of direct assistance within a relatively short duration. In contrast, real disposable personal income for our OECD sample increased only moderately during the pandemic. So they're leading us along the path, and then they're going to come with the final conclusion in a second. Jeff, you're going to love this. Did more disposable income turn into more inflation? The higher inflation rate in the U.S. may relate in part to the stronger fiscal response. One way to assess the possible connection is using a Phillips curve framework. No comments from the peanut gallery. They came up with a model. You can see the results. Here's a graph. Basically, they were trying to tease out what would CPI have been had there been no stimulus payment. Yeah, but here's the thing. Here's the whole thing, Emil. Yes. It's not just the government's intervention. That's only part of the equation. Had there not been the COVID pandemic, had there not been the supply bottlenecks and the logistical problems, would consumer prices have accelerated as much as they did? I think the answer is probably no. I think the supply part of it explains consumer prices more than the government, inter the shift in demand did. And I think that's part, I mean, we're conflating two different factors here. And I don't know if the, the paper controlled for those factors or even attempted to control for those factors. And I think we have to go this, to the to the other paper to get to that to answer that question. But that's I think right. that's really the spoiler here is that it's more of a supply driven uh, consumer price effect, a transitory supply shock, if you will. Forgive me for using that term. Then it is directly about the government throwing cash at the economy. And I think that's the difference between the two spikes that you're talking about, Emil. We didn't get a consumer price result in the first one, the CARES Act in 2020. You know, remember consumer prices rebounded from this mildly deflationary global financial crisis number two. But then by the end of the year, they were starting to decelerate all, all over again. And it wasn't until the second one in 2021 that consumer prices really started to react, which is when demand and supply imbalance was at its greatest point. Yeah, because I, I, I want to look at, like, why did this happen? Because this isn't the first time the government's given people money before. Now, the size and scope, we, that, that's a different story. But if we go back in history where we've seen these one-time, you know, tax refunds, how did the economy react and how did people spend it? They actually paid off their debt. And that was pretty interesting. Not as much of it as we wanted went back into the economy and it was saved or used for debt pay down. So now let's fast forward to what happens here. We actually shut down the entire global economy and people are sent home. And not only are they sent home, from an insurance perspective, we actually give them more than their income was. And, and you think about you know, insuring your home or your car. And let's say I was going to do that because I knew this big storm was going to blow through and potentially, you know, blow my house down, you know, wreck my car. And I called my insurance agent and I said, look, I want to insure these things for 10 times their actual value. And they laugh at me. We can't do that. We can insure up to, you know, the replacement value. Well, the government didn't insure people and their businesses to replacement value. They went beyond that. 
And so all this money started flooding into the equity market because people had excess money. Stocks screamed higher and people that, you know, either were at retirement or maybe pretty close to retirement, when that market surged higher, they were like, hey, you know what? All of a sudden, I don't have to work anymore. And so we have these highly skilled older workers that were really efficient at their job say, hey, you know what? Man, my, my, my 401k just went up by 30% and I got all the stimulus money. I'm going to go home. And now all of a sudden, we really get to the supply issue here is employers, they didn't have the raw materials they needed because the economy was slowed down. They didn't have the workforce they wanted. And all of a sudden, this whole thing just ground to a halt. And we're still digging out of that mess. So we have to take this from a supply side factor and say, this is completely different than what we've seen before. We're definitely going to be addressing supply and demand and which contributed more and which is contributing more at the present in the second paper. So you're both right to hone in on that. Just to summarize the conclusion here, at the end, Jeff, you were right about that there was a spike in disposable income in 2020, but there was relative to the OECD sample, but there was an inflation. And in this chart here, the third chart we're looking at, they calculate using their model with the Phillips curve that there would have been a drastic collapse in reported CPI at the end of 2020 compared to where we were, which was just steady inflation compared to the previous year. And then they showed another somewhat much less drastic fall in estimated CPI in the first half of 2021 had there been no stimulus. But let us move on to how you break up the supply versus demand. But again, the point is here, they're saying three percentage points extra in the core inflation rate relative to other countries in the United States because of these stimulus payments. A couple months later, June, we've got another report from the same bank, Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And here is what the analysis highlights, which is that both supply and demand factors are responsible for the current elevated inflation levels. Supply factors explain about half of the difference between the current 12-month PCE inflation and pre-pandemic inflation levels, and the effects appear to be rising more recently. Demand factors are responsible for about a third of the difference, and those effects appear to be diminishing more recently. The remainder is due to factors that cannot definitively be labeled as supply or demand, the large impact of supply factors implies inflationary pressures will not completely subside until labor shortages, production constraints, and shipping delays are resolved. Any thoughts there before I continue? Yeah, I think that uh, it kind of, they're a little bit premature in their conclusions here. And I know this gets back to you making me, last week, making me try to make a prediction here about how inflation or how consumer prices are going to how the uh, downside of transitory is going to play out. And I think, Emil, you would ag more agree with the paper that there's a more of a gradual deceleration here because of these supply factors. And I, I think people could see that. I mean, there's, there's definitely a case to be made for that. Whereas, Steve, you're more of the, hey, <laughs> it might be gradual and then all at once kind of a deceleration, which uh, I, I might lean toward that, that view because I think you have to look at some of these like the demand factors. Supply is definitely going to be a problem for a long time, but as we see in markets, demand can be nonlinear and it could be discontinuous where demand kind of decelerates a little bit and then all of a sudden it just falls off a cliff. And we don't know that point it actually happens. So, to, you know, 
again, this is the problem with econometrics and economic studies. They're, they're examining this in a ceteris paribus environment, saying if nothing else changes, we would expect this to happen. And so, you know, there's two parts of this, this discussion is what does it mean going forward versus what actually happened? And what actually happened, I think, um, I don't think, you know, do we argue, do we want to split hairs and say half was supply, a third was demand? I mean, that, that's a reasonable conclusion. That's relatively reasonable estimates. And I think that, again, going back to what we just said, which is it's not just the government's payments that cause the consumer prices to spike. There is a heavy dose of the supply bottlenecks that are really responsible for what happened in, in consumer prices. And I look at it a little bit differently, and I think that those things are, even though they're, they're going to be around for a while, their impact on consumer prices, I think, is the opposite of what the paper, the conclusion they come to, which is, you know, the economy adjusts to them, and eventually over time, it overcomes those those deficiencies. So in the two sort of questions we have here is, you know, what happened and then what does that mean going forward? I think the what happened part, yes, mostly about the supply side. And then what does that mean going forward? That's really a more of a question about demand in my mind. Right. And where do we see demand right now? And that's what's interesting, because here we have this academic paper of academics trying to figure out how this all happened. In reality, it happened. We can go back and look at that later. What we need to see is what's about to happen. You know, the second quarter, what do we hear from corporations? Oh, well, we, we kind of got a little bit too much inventory that we want. But don't worry. This is inventory we're pretty sure we can sell. And we're and we're about to get all the inventory we really want that you are going to just die to get. And you're going to come flooding into the stores. And what are we what did we start to hear this week? Uh, retailers are starting to say, hey, you know what? We we put this inventory, our own inventory on clearance. And it didn't sell. Yeah. And now we're getting concerned that, gosh, maybe we might have to clearance the clearance price. And boy, but, but don't worry, that will sell too. A, yeah. and, and so you're starting to see that this is really becoming now, but what may have been a supply issue before is really been shifting now into this huge demand issue. And that's kind of where my view comes through, as you mentioned, Jeff, is I think there is this point where demand just all of a sudden snaps and falls off the cliff. And, and maybe we're getting a taste of it now. And by, like you said, September and the months that come, it may become more apparent. Well, yeah, I mean, Steve, look at the recent PMI data. I know it's the soft data, hard data, that discussion there. But recent PMI data, the soft data usually goes first in the cycle. And it's not just the Fed regional surveys where new orders have collapsed, which suggests exactly what you're saying. Retailers have said, holy crap, we were trying to discount our inventory. It's not really working. We're going to have to just shut everything down and hope we can clear everything through. Look at the services PMI from S&P Global, which I know I think we'll get to in a, in a different episode. But, you know, the idea that demand sort of hit a cliff, that's kind of what the services PMI is suggesting, that it's not just your usual hey, downturn sort of concerning weakness. It was as if in especially July and then August, something really happened on the demand side. And if that's the case, forget about the supply shock. That's not even going to matter at all. It's going to be the prices are, go, are going to follow your scenario, Steve, which they're going to come down much quicker than maybe most in the mainstream are anticipating, certainly not in the markets. You look at, for example, yesterday and Thursday, the Jackson Hole now we're what is today? Today's the 27th. We're recording this on Saturday, the day after the Jackson Hole started. You know, Jay Powell comes out incredibly hawkish. We're still we're we're 70 style Paul Volkering this stuff. And the market just basically shrugged and said, yeah, we don't we're not buying it. 
No. And, and so the first shoe to drop is new orders go down. Cause as you said, all of a sudden retailers, wholesalers look at their inventory, not seeing it move, but there's still this belief in the economy. And that's what, you know, and maybe Friday changed that, you know, a little bit. The market had a pretty big reaction, but the, the answer from businesses has been, well, we're going to lay off a, a bit of people. We maybe got a, just too many workers, but there's still this confidence because what do we keep hearing from policymakers? You know, the, the second, the second quarter is going to be really strong or the second half. The first quarter, just a little slowdown. Second half, we're going to boom because the second shoe to drop, which is really where you start to see inflation come down is when employers realize that, hey, demand demand is falling off a cliff, and then they start getting rid of employees because they have to cut overhead. I think that's the second shoe to drop. I don't know, and I don't know what you think, Jeff, if we'll see that in the non-farm payroll report because of its smooth effect, but I think the non-farm payroll report might give us a false positive here pretty soon. All right, Jeff, you'll answer that one or no? No, I mean, no. <laughs> you want to predict the establishment surveys, it's going to be a straight line until it's not. It's one of those things. <laughs> You know, the establishment survey like demand just kind of falls off a cliff at some point. And it's impossible to predict. Because that um, one's you know, got that trend cycle analysis. Where, so yeah. it's natural tendencies to keep going straight until they go back and reevaluate. And it's not very good at predicting inflections. Right, Jeff? The household is much better. Not until, no. And even in the short run, you know, you go back to 2008, you look at the uh, the revisions, the short run, not even the benchmark revisions, the short run revisions in 2008 were pretty sharp because once the cycle turns, they try to play catch up. But that's several months down the road. So, you know, I'm you know, you look at some of the other labor market data and, and you know, as Steve said, we've got yeah, you know, any number of anecdotal references. There was a survey from Price Waterhouse, well, it used to be called Price Waterhouse Cooper is now PwC, which said a survey of 700 business executives, half of them ex- indicated, half of them, 50% said, yeah, we're already cutting workers. Um, you see anecdotes from any number of companies, especially in Silicon Valley, saying we're cutting workers. Amazon said they were letting go 100,000 workers, 10% of the workforce. So you're, you're starting to see the labor market adjust. And rather than what Jay Powell says about a strong second half of the labor market's good, you know, they're always looking backwards, not forward, where companies are looking forward, not backwards. And you see this mismatch where Powell is thinking inflation is going to be a problem when it's not even inflation, whereas companies are already seeing demand is softening, inventory, all sorts of business investment problems. We saw the GDP numbers. Um, the second half is setting up already to be worse than, than the, the, certainly the Fed is expecting. And then you add in labor market uncertainty. You don't even need layoffs. You just some labor market uncertainty and suddenly consumers pull back, which I think explains the S&P Global Services and Composite PMI, which is consumers are already starting to get scared, which we knew from the you know, consumer sentiment that is, you know, record lows and things like that. So there is a toxic stew here that isn't just now being put together. It's been stewed up for quite some time and it just... Where is the good stuff? Where is, you know, other than the unemployment rate in the establishment survey, everything continues to point in the same direction. And it's the same direction that the markets have been plotting out. The, not, I mean, by markets, I mean, I don't mean stocks. I mean, markets as in, in bond curves and money curves that have been plotting out since last year. And everything has just followed along exactly in that fashion. You know, every chance for a deviation, every chance to get out of it. Nope. We just can keep going in the same direction. And so when you see the curves as in- inverted as they are, you know, you kind of have to expect all of these other shoot, not just one shoe to drop. There's a lot of them that are about to drop. 
Let me finish up with this article, which explains what's happening during the pandemic in terms of supply and demand driven inflation or consumer price increases. Quote, the decline in inflation at the onset of the pandemic was driven by a decrease in demand factors, while the surge in inflation in March 2021 was mainly due to the increase in demand driven factors. During this period, the economy began to reopen from pandemic related public health policies. The American Rescue Plan enacted in March 2021 further stimulated demand factors. These factors began to slow in the summer of 2021. They blame it on with an increase in COVID-19 and infections associated with the Delta variant. But demand reemerged in the fall of as the Delta wave subsided. I would say it's because the subsidies subs- stopped. Okay, now supply. Yeah, but no, I mean, I mean, just turning it around. But not only that, you have to remember that the Delta wave introduced another set of supply impediments too. That's why you saw consumer prices accelerate in September and into October after they had started to decelerate already because the big shutdowns, not just in the U.S., but mostly around the rest of the world, the reaction to the Delta wave, it made all the supply problems before that much worse. And so as that inventory rush, primarily from the U.S., but also from other places around the world, the second half of last year, you had turbocharged supply uh, restrictions at the same time as, you know, everything else was going on, which meant, you know, pandemic policies, whatever else, that's really where consumer prices accelerated the most. It wasn't the demand part of it. It was the doubling down on the supply part of it. I believe the Bank of San Francisco agrees with you, Jeff. They were saying that was the demand driving the inflation early on before petering off at the end. Now, they blame it on the Delta variant coming in and people getting scared. I blame it on there not being more stimulus, which created the demand in the first place, in my opinion. But then they come back and they say that they, quote, unquote, agree with Jeff Snyder, handsome co-host of the Eurodollar University podcast, because supply factors began to arise in April 2021, indicating a slightly delayed response from the economic reopening. Supply-driven inflation has remained elevated since then and has accelerated more recently. This acceleration is attributable to the food and energy supply disruptions, including those associated with the invasion of Ukraine. And here's their conclusion. Because supply shocks raise prices and suppress economic activity, the prevalence of supply-related factors raises the risk of entering a period of low growth and elevated inflation levels. This risk depends crucially on how long labor shortages and global supply disruptions persist. I thought these two articles were very helpful, very educational, that helped explain why CPI was so high in the United States, the timing, the sequencing. I will let you both guess how many times these articles mentioned either credit, money, (laughs) bank reserves, QE. Now, Adam, take your time. Take your time. How many? Zero is correct. Yeah. Zero. Supply, demand, stimulus. But you can see the problem with them, though, is that especially the second study, which was, I mean, I think probably better than the first. But even though there's they're still saying that, oh, the supply shocks are going to the supply problems are going to be a problem for a long period of time. But they're assuming that that we're not going to run into a demand shock. They're just simply saying that if everything stays the way that the mainstream econometric models say then we're going to have elevated uh, consumer prices because we still have logistical problems and everybody's going to have to pay up. But that's not how the world works. And 
Historically speaking, if you correctly identify a supply shock, you should correctly identify what comes at the end of the supply shock, which is the demand downdraft and therefore recession, which rebalances everything, consumer prices. Consumer prices don't necessarily go back to where they started, but they no. at least do stop increasing. So yeah. it's not like we're going to go back to 2020 prices again. I mean, some commodities maybe, but you know, they will stop. They will probably stop rising at, at uh, any appreciable rate at some point. And I think, again, I lean more towards Steve's view than your view, Emil, that if we do get a, a sharp demand response at some point, then that will probably be sooner rather than later. Well, OK. Well, in my defense, I said that if I didn't say I didn't factor that in. I said, of course, blah. if we do have a demand response, yeah, definitely. I agree with Steve. But I don't know when or if that speed bump uh, pothole is ahead of us, when we're going to run into it. All right, Steve, you take us out of here. Get us get us out of the show. Yeah, I think Jeff just made a very, very strong prediction here. Uh, probably one of the strongest predictions I've ever heard that we're going to enter a global recession, uh, demand led global recession. So uh, at least that's how I took it. That's Definitely. not my prediction, Definitely. though. I'm getting that from the marketplace. The market is telling me what I should be thinking. And the market has been saying, as we said, from the very beginning, even the beginning of the supply shock, you know, that's why the curves never steepened out. Even the CPIs went up because the market was saying, we know how this ends. It doesn't end in secular inflation. There's no commodity super cycle. There's, you know, this is not a secular inflationary trend. It's a supply shock. And at some point, it's going to look like all the rest of the supply shocks, which is a, a, you know, a rebalancing of demand through recession which is why the curves have only gotten more and more inverted, which is more and more market confidence in this scenario. So, yes, that, you know, we know this. Thank you, San Francisco Fed. We knew it was the supply shock, but now we have some quantitative proof for it. All right, gentlemen, I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, you can follow up and get more of Steve and Jeff's work in the show notes. And of course, on screen, we're showing their Twitter handles and websites. So follow up with them there. Thank you. And I will talk to you all next week.